Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was the guitar-wielding freedom fighter Tom Morello getting us started, as always. Tom shows up, and I hope each of you, each of us, is showing up in these remarkable and extraordinary times. None of us can afford to miss this brutal, hopeful, tragic, joyous, unprecedented, and magical moment. We open each seminar, each edition of the podcast, with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement that seminar is in session. I think you know by now that the thing I love about poetry is that it's never easy. Real poetry demands work from listeners and from readers. Today's poem is Art by the phenomenal transcendent artist from Chicago, Haki Matabuti. This is called Art. Art is a prodigious and primary energy force. Children's active participation in music Dance, painting, poetry, film, photography, and the indigenous crafts of their people is what makes them whole, significantly human, secure in their own skin, culture, and abilities, thus generating in them unlimited possibilities. Art is fundamental instruction and food for a people's soul as they translate the many languages and acts of becoming, often telling them in no uncertain terms that all humans are not pure or perfect. However, The children of all cultures inherit their creator's capacity to originate from the bone of their imaginations, the closest manifestations of purity, perfection, and beauty. Art at its best encourages us to walk on water, dance on top of trees, and skip from star to star without being able to swim, keep a beat, or fly. A child's on-fire imagination is the one universal prerequisite for becoming an artist. Magnify your children's mind with art. Jumpstart their questions with art. Introduce your children to the cultures of the world through art. Energize their young feet, spirits, and souls with art. Infuse the values important to civil culture via art. Keep them curious, political, and creative with art. Speak and define the universal language of beauty with art. Learn to appreciate peace with art. Approach the cultures of others through their art. Introduce the spiritual paths of other people through their art. Keep young people in school, off drugs, and out of prison with art. Keep their young minds running, jumping, and excited with art. Examine the nurturing moments of love, peace, and connecting differences with art. The poem was Art by Haki Matabuti, read by my comrade Malik Alim. Let's continue with our second regular feature, a free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. Make a list of five to ten proclamations, declarations, commands, requests, pleas, entreaties, or appeals, each of which ends with the words, with art, through art, or via art. Okay, start writing. I'll be right here when you get back. 
If you want to share your response to the writing prompt, email a voice memo to underthetree at gmail.com. We might play it in a future episode, so make sure you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. You can also follow us at Under the Tree Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel for clips and interviews. Okay, back to the show. It's time for our guest speaker segment, where we open a dialogue with folks who can help us illuminate complex concepts like freedom and justice as we work to understand this unique political moment and gather the strength to storm the heavens. I call this segment Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, a title that I shamelessly stole from today's guest, although I like to say that I sampled it. We'll talk about that in a minute, Lisa, and I'll ask for you for permission, but let me introduce you first. It's really a great pleasure for me to welcome uh, the intrepid and dazzling Lisa Young Lee to Under the Tree. She's the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum, a professor of gender and women's studies, as well as art history museum and exhibition studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and a generous friend and determined comrade for many, many years. Welcome to Under the Tree, Lisa. Ah, oh, so happy to be here, Bill. And as I learned from you, uh, you know, always do things first and ask for uh, forgiveness <laughs> later, right? So, <laughs> or don't so for- even ask for forgiveness. So forgive me, forgive me. Maybe actually, just because people don't know this, maybe say a word about that title because you did think that title up a decade and a half ago or something. Um, and it was something we worked on together. It was kind of fun. Yeah, uh, me, you, Barbara Ransby, a whole bunch of wonderful people. Uh, yeah, it was when I first moved to Chicago and I met this band of quote unquote public intellectuals, activists, rabble rousers, um, who were thinking about how to create a so-called public square. It was that moment where institutions were completely, you know, falling out of the public realm. There was this vision that democracy was somehow best served when we had consensus rather than dissent. And, you know, we started an organization together called The Public Square, which was meant to really challenge the role of institutions, individuals, um, and ask people to come onto the public square to really form a more participatory democracy. And so we had a beautiful salon series in people's living rooms, in public spaces, um, you know, with, you know, just the most incredible people. Maxine Hong Kingston, I remember, was there. Um, You know, just writers and artists. It was Gish Jen was there. I remember Gish Jen came. Uh, There were many, many people, but but that was only one of the many programs you started in this... um, this bid to create a public. I mean, I think that people sometimes think of the public as this kind of passive thing that's just out there, but actually you are really a pioneer in understanding that a public has to be created. It doesn't exist unless it is in motion or in somehow in action. And so you set out to create a public in Chicago. The public, the Activists, artists, and authors after hours was one thing we did, but but talk a little bit more about what the public square did because I think you're still doing it, although this was two decades ago. 
Yeah, I mean, I always say that I am extremely intellectually promiscuous. And so, you know, like I sort of dabble in all sorts of things. And, you know, I had gotten my just PhD in uh, German studies and in a look reading and studying a group of people, uh, part of the Frankfurt School and like birth of critical theory. And for them, people like Herbert Marcuse and Theodore Adorno, they were really thinking a lot about um, what a vibrant public looks like. Of course, they were writing during 33 and 45, you know, in the rise of fascism, and they escaped and emigrated to the United States, which supposedly was the land of freedom, and they realized, wow, this place is actually no less free. It's no better than what's mm. happening in Germany. And that mm. sort of the ravages of capitalism um, had created the same kinds of terror um, on certain groups of people in the United States. And they really fought to create a public square um, at that time. And then, you know, I sort of wandered and, you know, came across Jane Addams. And it's sort of like, I'm not so much a pioneer as just realizing as many cultural activists before me that the public is a space that has always been contested, is a place for democracy and for dissent. And if we do not actually create spaces for rich public dialogue um, and protest, that you know we are living in a deeply impoverished world. So you called yourself a cultural activist. Uh, uh, dilate on that for a bit. <laughs> well, one of my favorite quotes is by Tony Cade Bambera who says that the role of the artist and the cultural activist is to make the revolution irresistible. And yeah. so when I had read that, I thought, oh, that's actually what I want to do. Because there's actually a lot of people in this world who are, you know, for example, in the streets marching. There are people who are writing beautiful tomes and, and analysis. And I realized at one point that my talent and what I actually love to do was to actually bring all these people together and think about how to make ideas appealing, how to actually create spaces of collective joy, how to actually foreground the creation of community um, and that this was deeply part of what a revolution needed and also what we actually need to sustain ourselves in order to create the world that we want to live in. So the arts play a, a huge role in your mind in, in terms of revolutionary change, in terms of structural change, uh, all the arts, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, art in some ways is a kind of rarefied word in in one sense right like what is art and what's not art is something that has is being contested every single day in museums and other sort of civic institutions but then there's another sort of strand of people like Joseph Boys and other people who sort of say that everyone is an artist that we all have this capacity to create we have the capacity to unleash our radical imaginations. And I always say, you know, in this world where there's so much unmaking and so much destruction, we really need to value the people who are makers, the people who are creators. Mm. And that's the artists. And mm. it is the people who are the class of artists, who, but also all of us, right? That mm -hmm. sort of creative instinct in each of us. It, it brings me back to a conversation you and I and several of us had at the University of Illinois at Chicago, this notion of rarefied term, you know, the artist. And that's the same with intellectual. I think everyone's an intellectual. The idea that there's such a thing as a public intellectual struck me as kind of an odd 
idea because every human being has the capacity to think, to act, to invent, to create, to imagine. And uh, there are only very few private intellectuals like Emily Dickinson and J.D. Salinger. The rest are, you know, want to, they want to say something and are often denied the right to say those things or suppressed. But, but I think like, like artists, intellectual is sometimes rarefied and we ought to reclaim it for all of us. I, I always say every teacher is an intellectual. We do intellectual work. That's what we do. And often teachers say, ooh, that's too lofty for me. But I don't think so. Yeah, and I think at the same time, it's also really important to recognize that there are some people, right, who choose to become teachers as a profession, as a form of labor, just like there are artists who actually are putting forth their physical, intellectual, emotional labor as artists. And all of this work also needs to be compensated, to be recognized. And, you know, it's not to say that just because everyone is an artist, that somehow we don't recognize the profession of an artist as work, right? And that's something that I remember coming across um, when the time when I was at the Jane Addams Hull House Museum, which was such a formative time for me, learning about this group of progressive women who, you know, redefined what the word social welfare is and challenged the state to be responsible for its people. And there was a book which was about calories. They were trying to explain the notion of healthy eating to the world. And Mm. in this little footnote on this page, it said, you know, you need enough calories to do work. And then the asterisk led you to the bottom of the page where it said, and by work, we mean people who are picking up sledgehammers sledgehammers and building the railroads as much as people who are picking up a pen and writing a piece of poem a poetry mm-hmm. and it was sort mm-hmm. of like this little you know sort of uh intervention and a, a sort of moment where they said we want you to know that even though we're in this period of the wpa where there's people who are like building railroads and buildings let's not forget the artists and the poets and the people who are doing meaningful work in that way you know it was just such an Beautiful. important footnote right. <laughs> you know you mentioned both the, your work at the jane adams hull house museum and um, you mentioned that museums are now a contested space, uh, thankfully. And, and in some ways, you had a hell of a lot to do with kicking your way into the museum world and contesting it. But, but as you know, my admiration for you is bottomless. But that admiration in many ways began when you were the head of the Jane Addams Hull House Museum because you transformed that place. Maybe say a word about what you did there and some of the projects that you undertook there and why. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for saying that. I mean, it was a really special moment and a sort of moral um, sort of obligation slash privilege to be able to walk through those doors at 800 South Halstead every single day because so much incredible social change had its roots at that address. You know, um, mm-hmm. Chicago's really important, eventually became the, the most important settlement house in the United States, the home of Jane Addams, who, as you know, was not only America's first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize, but also considered the most dangerous woman in America, <laughs> you know, on the FBI most, you know, lists. Uh, and because of her radical ideas about what democracy 
was and who should be engaged in the struggle. Um, and you know, I had the great privilege of being the director there and thinking about how do we reinvigorate a historic site. And one of the very first things I did was uh, join a group called uh, the International Sites of Conscience, which is a group of historic sites which is committed to something which seems very benign, but actually is a very dangerous notion, which is this belief that in order to actually preserve history, you have to make it relevant to people's today's lives and to link that history to contemporary social justice struggles. And that in order to actually solve today's social justice struggles, we have to become astute students of history and actually mm -hmm. ask, what is it that we have not yet learned from history and what can history teach us? And it's one of those things that when you say it, you think, duh, of course, but you realize when you open your eyes and look that most historic sites, for example, don't do that. They sort of stay calcified, you know, right, just sort of solidified in the past, you know, whether it's like a colonial Williamsburg or, you know, <laughs> come and yeah. learn about the history. Um, right. And without like, and this kind of notion was so important for thinking about a moment of time uh, when Jane Addams worked, when the issues of suffrage that, you know, she had just survived, also a period of abolition um, and, you know, war and um, school reform, working with John Dewey and immigration issues. And, you know, when I was there in the 80s and 90s, those were the exact same issues that we were talking mm -hmm. about. The prison industrial complex, immigration issues, you know, the sort of attack on women's reproductive freedoms, you know, and sort of how, what is it that we can learn from this history and how do we link it? Um, and, you know, we just had an amazing time also thinking about um, what it means to be a museum. Um, like you said, it's one of the most contested terms at this time. There's a huge struggle around this because, of course, museums like schools have been completely implicated in reinscribing power and privilege, right? It's like where the so-called 1% get to perpetrate their mainstream narratives where their objects are preserved, where their stories are told. And, you know, people are pounding down the doors to try and make them more inclusive and accessible. And it was a moment for us to say, what does it mean to be a museum? What does it mean to be at this historic site at this particular time? And the sort of nexus all came together. And, you know, we had like a great time. For example, I mean, you know this, when the sort of work we did with Sam Cass and Tara Lane creating a soup kitchen, you know, this, there was a beautiful residence dining hall that John Dewey had come to, W.B. Du Bois had been there, Susan B. Anthony, and nobody knew what to do with it. It was sort of blocked off with velvet um, sort of ropes, and you had to put little booties to like walk into it and just sort of stand in awe. And I remember sitting there one afternoon, we're like, what could we do with it? We could turn it into a gallery, we could, you know, maybe we should, um, you know, put a library in here. And then at some moment, we just thought, it used to be a dining hall, Let's just dine in it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we opened this 20, you know, first century uh, soup kitchen to bring people together to talk about environmental justice, to talk about health issues, and just give out free bowls of soup, right? And sometimes the most obvious answer is ends up being the most just answer. Yeah, just to underline the point, because I was there, um, the Jane Addams Hall House Museum had become calcified. It was kind of like dusty and musty and nobody much visited. When the dining room became again a dining room, I remember a strike vote by university workers taking place in that dining room. That's more in the spirit of Jane Addams than having a velvet rope and gawking at pictures. I mean, it was, 
it was really alive. And the soup kitchen, I think you called it Rethinking Soup, right? And, and in the old days, in the original Jane Addams Hall House with Ida B. Wells Barnett and the whole John Dewey, W.B. Du Bois, they did have lunches and soup kitchens where intellectuals, artists, homeless people, and working class people met together to break bread. And you pretty much accomplished that same thing. I mean, it was kind of extraordinary, right? Yeah, no. And I, I think the other thing that was so critical to that moment of what we decided to do um, at that museum was to actually not make the museum about Jane Adams, right? Because the sort of a deep reading of her own texts and her writings and what was actually happening at that point made us realize that she was just one person in this sort of cast of character. And she was extremely charismatic and as of course the person who sort of won the Nobel Peace Prize, but actually she was a movement builder and a movement leader. And it was not just the group of women and people of color and immigrants who worked with her, but the tens of thousands of people who came through the doors of Hull House that actually animated that place and made the stories worth telling. And so as soon as we decentered Jane Addams, like when you come to the museum, you don't even really encounter her until like minute 25 or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you actually meet the housekeeper um, and you meet uh, sort of the people who built the house, you know, the sort of prison laborers who actually carved um, the sort of door frames. And those are the people whose stories that um, really make that history so much more capacious, so much more interesting, frankly, um, when you decenter the one person and tell it as history actually is made, you know, through a community of people coming together to transform the world for everyone. Right. You did so many other things to, to that, some of which seem tiny and small, but but it always struck me as interesting. One that comes to mind is you had people vote on different labels for different parts of the museum. Do you remember that? That 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 you had people choose a label, for example, about Jane Addams' relationship with her partner. Yeah. I mean, so there's a kind of movement now in the museum field called decolonized museums. And on one very simple level, it's, of course, about opening up the museum so that there's more women, more people of color, that, you know, the stories that you tell, they're more diverse. But at a deeper level, the effort to decolonize institutions is to ask, how has your field actually benefited? What are the practices within your field, which are completely colonial, imperialistic, part of the hetero, you know, patriarchy? And the very benign thing that you see in museums, the museum label, is one of the most oppressive you know, things that happens. It's sort of the omniscient voice of a nameless person who's usually a curator who tells you what this object is and what it means, right? right. And so when I got to the Hall House, there was a beautiful painting uh, of Mary Rose Smith, who was Jane Addams' uh, partner. Um, and I, I thought, how is this painting, you know, hanging out of view? Nobody can see it. It's basically hidden away in the, um, you know, offices of the museum. And somebody said to me just very casually, oh, I don't know. We don't know what to call that lady. Like either she was her lover or her partner or her business, you know, manager or whatever. So we don't know what to call her. So we can't put the, we, because we don't know, we can't put that object on display. Right. Wow. And I just thought, how inane is this? So right. instead we 
did the work of what I think good museum professionals should be, which is to do the research, find multiple conflicting narratives, and then to present it to the public, to create a public sphere where people could engage and learn, and then to sort of vote and say, we actually think this label is most meaningful, that tells us the most. Uh, and of course, you know, that was in a period when Jay Adams was not yet considered gay. And then through a lot of work that I like to think that the museum helped to participate in to sort of introduce the notion of Jane Addams sexuality, why it might be important, why it might not be important into the dialogue. You know, she is now proudly a gay woman out in the Chicago History Museum and, you know, Gay Lesbian Hall of Fame. Um, But, and, you know, for me, it was a really important project to say that we need to open up this dialogue and actually have a dialogic relationship with visitors. But, you know, we stopped that project at the moment when uh, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's house museum, contacted us and said, we love that project. We saw it on the internet because we had, of course, put it on the internet and asked, you know, people from all over the world to participate in it. And they said, we don't know how to call and name Sally Hemings. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson's, quote unquote, you know, lover, partner, enslaved person that he forced into a relationship with him. So they did not know how to say it. So they said, we don't want to take responsibility for naming this. So we want to create a project like yours. And we'll just put up three different labels and ask the public what they think, right? And so then I realized at that moment that there was a kind of at some moment, you can have a project that reaches a point, does its work, then maybe needs to be transformed because the public has actually moved and the role of the institution is actually to take responsibility and to speak the truth, right? And all these sort of multiple ways that we understand truth, whether it's forensic, narrative, dialogic, or restorative, the work of the museum needed to be the latter, like a restorative truth, instead of just promoting dialogue, right? Because, I mean, I think it's really important in a sort of theory of change that you have to have all these moments. Like, yes, you just have to admit that there is climate change. Like, there is sort of forensic truth. (laughs) But at some moment, that may not be good enough. Like, an institution might be charged then, once we recognize the forensic truth, to actually be the sort of mover of reparations or to remediate that and to restore justice, right? And so at some moment, the work of the museum can and should be to present forensic truth. The next moment might be to create dialogue and recognize narrative truths. But at this moment, you know, with my role in the National Public Housing Museum, I'm very much thinking about what does it mean to be a civic institution that is anchored in a community um, that has been so completely, you know, decimated, destroyed through urban renewal processes, through racism, um, through policing, that the role of a museum might be to actually push for reparations and to move for restorative justice. Like, it's not good enough to create a space where people can talk about, oh, was public housing good or bad? You know, you know and to sort of dispute that. Like, that becomes right. the lamest sort of kind <clears throat> of civic institution. Yeah. Right, so with with uh, Jane Adams' uh, label, that was promoting dialogue. But with Monticello, you're saying, "Come on, people, catch up. This is this is slavery. This is not." Um, uh, you know, when I went to Monticello, and it was after they were trying to make some changes, they had they began calling the enslaved people enslaved workers on the labels, which I thought was progress. But it was still completely focused around Thomas Jefferson. And when I was in the basement uh, in the 
in the cook's bedroom next to the kitchen. There was a tiny little room where, and it said kind of casually, the cook and her husband and six children lived here. And after dinner, they liked to quilt and sing songs. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, and probably like to plot the overthrow of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Like they should have the sort of knives under the under the pillows and things like that, right? <laughs> no, but that goes back to the earlier question you said, which, which you asked me about the public. Um, so many times museums pretend that the public already exists, right? And they say, oh, we need to do this because the public wants this or the public is not ready for that. But what we know from being good students of public sphere theory, whether it's Judith Butler and you know Warner talking about public spheres and how they're formed, that the public actually gets formed by our form of address, by what we do, what we say, and how we act, and the spaces that we create. And so in that way, we are responsible for the public that we create, and hopefully a sort of future public that may not yet even exist, right? A future public which is willing to ask critical questions, that uh, a sort of utopian space, a utopian public, and that I think is really important. And what's the thing where I can't stand it, well, like Fox News? News, obviously, in places like that, which say, oh, we're just saying what the public actually wants to hear and thinks. But of course, Fox News is in the process of creating a particular kind exactly. of, you know, white supremacist you know, public. So it's, it's not only, it's not only, of course, intellectuals, artists, and, and others who work to create a public, it's activists and it's organizers. I mean, if you think about the last few months and what came into being after the flash moment of the, the public assassination of George Floyd, the dial of the narrative has been so powerfully on point. And I think that's because of five years of activism from Black Lives Matter and others creating a narrative to explain the actions, even, even foreordaining some of the actions that were happening. I mean, so it's activists who create a public, too. No, 100%. And it, well, the other thing that's really important to realize is that by creating a really rich public that's worthy of its name, we actually are creating a much more vibrant private sphere as well, right? And in this moment where we're all sheltering in place and where this divide, the sort of dualism between private and public is becoming much more blurry, there's a sort of sense that like, wow, yeah, I want a private, which is not just a space that's being policed by a public. <laughs> like, I want right. a kind of privacy, which right. is worthy of its name as well, you know? And so, like, we are in this process now, which is part of the global uprisings, which is, and of course, activists have always said, you know, the personal is political, and, you know, it sort of showed how these two spheres interrelate with one another. Um, but I'm super excited about what it means for all of us when we have a very dynamic public sphere, which is filled with democracy, dissent, and protest, and then what that means for my private life as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I see, yeah. I mean, but the Every institution, as you said, every institution is having a reckoning. You mentioned museums, universities, schools, theaters, uh, symphonies. Everyone is having a reckoning. And the reckoning that was the Me Too moment is part of it, but it's the reckoning of Black Lives Matter and the reckoning of 
you know, systemic racism, institutional racism, white supremacy that flows back in history and is sitting on us right now. So as you look at arts institutions, arts organizations, the nonprofit world, they too are going through a reckoning. How do you see this moment for, for the arts and for arts organizations? Yeah, it is an incredible moment with so much potential. Um, first, the ver- most basic issues of, you know, who were the first people who were let go in museums, right? Like mm. in this moment of the pandemic where, you know, of course, at, they you can't have any visitors. And so, well, the first thing that happened was people started to have a huge identity crisis of like, if people can't come into the space, like what is our work, right? Like what mm. can we actually, and what should we be doing? And the second thing was, well, who do we actually fire and who is like a non-essential worker in the museums? And so what happened is all the racial dynamics of um, our cultural institutions became very obvious for everyone. The fact that there's 33 and a third percent of uh, museums that have jobs with people of color, black um, indigenous people of color, um, and of those 33%, 99% of them work as security guards or janitors, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So it was sort of this realization that as soon as they let go that workforce, that the institutions became glaringly 99.9% white people in mm. positions, right? And so the diversity became a huge issue that needed to be addressed. Um, and then also, you know, who's getting what they, what they were being paid. And so there's like a huge movement now for transparency and wages, which is really good. Um, and then the other thing was just, if you can't um, bring in paying visitors, like who are your stakeholders? Who are the people that you are actually responsible to, right? Mm. And something that people forget is that museums, like schools, you know, they are nonprofits and they do not pay taxes. Um, and so they're taking up huge amounts of real estate in communities um, and actually not contributing. So mm. then the question became, you know, what is their obligation to their surrounding communities? And um, as you know, in Chicago, there's a very big museum going up, the Obama Presidential Center. Um, and there was a big question about should they actually sign a community benefits agreement because they should be responsible, not just to the millions of people who will go to learn about the legacy of Barack Obama, but actually people living in the houses next door to them who are going going to be pushed out of those houses because of the gentrification that will happen because of the rising costs of homes um, and because of the changing demographic of the neighborhood. And um, for a very long time, the Obama Presidential Center said, no, we refuse to actually pay um, and to sign any kind of community benefits agreement. And that battle was actually uh, won recently where they finally oh, had... To, yeah, yeah, it was actually won. And so they agreed. I think they decided that they were not going to call it a CBA, but they did um, relinquish to um, Coco's agreements. You know, our good friend, as you know, Joanza Malone was pushing for those, you know, leading that effort. And they actually won that struggle. And in my mind, uh, the institution that I run, the National Public Housing Museum, you know, we have a 
rich community benefits agreement, which goes to not only us running a museum store, which will be a cooperative that's owned with public housing residents, but also um, a cultural workforce program so that there will actually be a diverse group of people who are working there. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of things are all happening now in a way that one, at maybe before the pandemic, nobody would have thought is possible. But the struggle to define what a museum is something that has been happening for you know decades. It's been a justice struggle, as you say, um, to sort of you know are we just beautiful spaces to preserve and interpret objects, or is there something more that we should be doing? And I always give the example that the roots of museums have sort of two very conflicting you know histories. You know, on one hand, there were these things called Wunderkammer, and they were like these you know beautiful cabinets of curiosity that rich people would put out of all the objects that they procured from their travels and from their friends that were gifted. And that's like one history of museums. And then the other history in Western civilization is the founding of the Louvre, which is considered the first museum in Western Civ. And of course, what that was, was immediately after the revolution, after the people stormed the castle and took, you know, Louis XIV's shit, they said, hey, this is not your stuff. It's our stuff. We're going to create a museum, right? And so you have these two competing kinds right. of histories of museums. And for me, there is always that tension. Are these museums going to be spaces just for rich people to get, you know, tax deductions for storing their art and for, for us to see these like rarefied cabinets of curiosity? Or are we going to be a place that has a revolutionary history where we say, these are our stories, this is our stuff, these are the things that we find valuable, and these become important teaching spaces for us. And I, of and course, I, I like the latter. <laughs> of course. And one of the things you've done with the National Public Housing Museum is begin an oral history project. Isn't that under, ongoing? Yeah? Yeah, no. And that's really, really important. Um, one of the first things you realize as a museum professional is that the objects of women, the objects of people of color, the objects of people who are living in poverty are not found in the archives, are not actually saved and preserved. And so the only way that we can actually gather these histories, these stories, is through the methodology of oral history, which in Chicago, of course, has one of the deepest traditions from people like Ida B. Zwald Barnett and Timuel Black and Studs Terkel and you know all of these lovely storytellers. Um, but we started very early on realizing that if we wanted to have a museum that told the stories of public housing residents, we would have to use oral history. Um, and so we started gathering the oral histories of people. And uh, then at some point we realized, hey, why is it that we are the ones who are gathering the stories? We should actually be training public housing residents to actually do this work so they are not just the narrators, but they're also the recorders. And then at some point we realized once we own the story, there's a kind of shift of power where the institution once again sort of feels like they control the story. And so we've invited the narrators to work with us in the archives to tag the story, to sort of keep control of the story and say, you know, this is how we want our story accessed and used. And so there's a really beautiful um, big project. We're working on a, a new 
uh, one now with e-viewing, gathering all the stories of um, State Street Corridor, and maybe also even starting something called the Beauty Turner uh, Oral History Academy, which will train young people to do oral history, and then to deploy oral history as a strategy for social change in policy, in arts, in whatever they choose to do. One thing I really want to say is um, I've been mulling and thinking a lot about this art of storytelling, you know, what it means to give an account. And the root of the word account is so lovely because it's about accountability, which is moral responsibility, and then also the keeping of accounts, which is about sort of fiscal transparency and economic justice, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, how do we actually create spaces for true accountability in oral history that can do all of those things, you know, to have, you know, a kind of economic and material gain for people and also be something that pushes for moral accountability and also storytelling. And so Mm -hmm. hopefully this is that space that will do that work. Yeah, you know, you're, you're also bringing to mind, I think it was Arundhati Roy who described pandemics throughout history as places where you can either walk through that portal dragging the, the blackened skies, the poisoned rivers with you, or you can see it as a portal to something new. And I think that that you're, you're pointing to something brand new. So the, we have the pandemic, which is illuminates all the underlying conditions of white supremacy, male supremacy, um, failing schools, uh, over, over-militarized police, and on and on and on. So what do you hope for when you think about this uprising and, and all the different unpredictable directions it's going to take? Where are you? What are you thinking? What are you hoping for? Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a big one. I mean, I think as a cultural activist, and who works in the museum field, there's been a long conversation where people say, oh, we want everyone to have access to our institutions. And so that's how we end up with things like Free Target Tuesday and you know <laughs> things like that where you don't have to pay money to get in. And something that I learned from Jane Addams and my work was that it's not just access, which is important, but the right of all people to determine what is beautiful for themselves, right? And when you dis- when you have that, then it becomes a kind of shared responsibility at museums of working with people to decide, you know, not only if they can come in on Tuesdays for free, but when they come into the doors of the institution, what is it that they're doing and what are they seeing and what are the stories that are being told and what are the artifacts that are being preserved and to have a real partnership and a kind of space of reciprocity. And so I do think at this moment where everything has been thrown up the air, um, there is a real chance for museums to become those kinds of spaces for all of us so that we can really challenge not just what is beautiful, what is true, what is just. Um, And, you know, we haven't even talked about the Confederate monuments and memorials that are coming down. But, you know, this moment of a public space that museums are leading the charge to ask, you know, whose stories are worth telling, whose objects are worth preserving, and what is the process by which we determine that in a participatory Mm. democracy. And Mm. we can become these civic institutions to actually create the public that can participate in this incredible work of becoming more human together. 
I, I think it's so important what you're pointing to. Access, equity, yes, but also recognition, also control, also participation. And when I see these monuments coming down and, and the conversations going on in the country, which I've been talking about for 50 years, and suddenly, wow, reparations is actually being discussed in the pages of the New York Times. It kind of blows your mind. But I think part of what you're saying about decentering, for example, Jane Addams, I would love to see all these bronze statues of horses and generals come down and in their place collective monuments. So think for a minute about the Haymarket statue and what took, what took its place once the policeman came down. Um, I, you know that story. No, and that, that is the role. And that's why we, when we started off this conversation, we we're talking about the importance and role of the makers and the artists, because a lot of this is a kind of aesthetic question, right? It's mm. about what could we replace when we take down a singular statue of a slave owner. It's not that we just want to replace it with an amazing black woman poet, of course, I'd be happy to do that as step yeah. one, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm so happy that Chicago finally has a Gwendolyn Brooks statue that we right. might push to have Ida B. Wells or otherwise, right? right. But that's yeah. really just the most, you know, sort of easy answer to the sort of incredible demands that activists have put into this world right now, you know, for abolition, for radical democracy, it would not just be sort of the replacement of one for one, right? It's like, we would have to unleash our imaginations and, re and imagine a kind of aesthetic that would reflect this beautiful collective movement for justice. And something that I would say is, I do think that there are great examples of that, particularly in Chicago. Um, I work with the Chicago Torture Justice Memorials mm. and this project to reimagine what a memorial would look like for the survivors um, and the people who suffered under John Burge, the, who tortured, you know, in this reign of terror. Um, and this memorial is a space which is, yes, about the names of people who suffered and survived with resilience, but it actually is a monument memorial to the activists who worked decades to actually create social change and to force the courts and force politicians to actually acknowledge the truth and to teach it in the schools, right? And so it's not a monument to just their survivors, but it celebrates a movement and a whole group of people who came together, many of them unnamed, you know, but who really believed that there could be justice. And that's the kind of monument that I want to see in the city. That is my absolutely favorite example. But I'm going to, I'm going to go back to one that I just referenced briefly, which is after the uh, great workers' struggle uh, to create the eight-hour day, and the police riot that killed a whole bunch of demonstrators in the 1880s, the Chicago put up a, a monument to a policeman saying in the name of the people of Chicago, I say halt. That statue was knocked down several times and eventually moved. But what now is in its place is a hay wagon with people coming out of the ground, holding it up, an orator on the top of it. So it's just what you say. It's a, it's a tribute to a movement, not to a person, not to a great man but to people together, redefining and reshaping their lives. It's a very exciting 
uh, moment for that, I think. Yeah, and perhaps I also think that future monuments won't actually be cast in stone and, you know, sort of steel, but to really reflect the ephemerality and this belief that we all know is that, you know, social justice is an ongoing struggle and we sort of pick up where other people left off and we continue on and others will pick up after us. And just acknowledgement that history is constantly being made by us and it's a work in progress, right? And so that anything that we put up would actually, and I hope it will be changed. I mean, you always say that, right? Like 20 years from now, our children will look back and grandchildren will say, what were you thinking, right? Right, So even though we thought we were living the most just life (laughs) that we could, you know, and that's the beauty of, you know, progress. And so I don't want anything that we put up now to be standing 50 years from now. You know, I want my grandchildren to sort of say, we would like something even more just in its Mm. place. And this acknowledgement that we are in in this beautiful, almost like art project of making history right now is sort of, you know, that's what it is. Um, the one thing that I always say is when you read 20 Years at Hull House, Jane Addams's beautiful uh, book about the creation of the um, Hull House settlement, she starts it with this meditation about how this was almost like an art project. And she thinks about social change almost like a durational art performance, right? Mm. Like this is, a, it's a kind of performance that we're all engaged in, a dance with one another and that we are making and that thinking about sort of social change as a durational art performance has been so productive, you know, for me in many ways and thinking about what it means to redo it to like when what happens when you make a mistake and, you know, all those kinds of things. Right, right. Wow. I could go on forever, but we're going to have to come to a close. I want to ask you just one more question um, for my own selfish uh, reasons, which is, what are you reading and what should I be reading? Uh, Yeah. Um, So the thing that I'm reading, who I'm reading a lot now is the wonderful Sadia Hartman. Um, you know, oh, she's just amazing. And I think for every museum professional, you know, that's one of the most important books. that you can read, um, scenes of subjection. Uh, you know, she has a wonderful way of writing, which she's coined, I think. I mean, a lot of people do this, but it's called critical fabulation. Mm. And it's a kind of deep historical research that is merged with critical theory, that is merged with fiction, right? Like mm. poetic fiction. Mm. And the sort of realization that if we, in the archives, we are not going to find the stories of certain people. What can we research and know so that we could imagine what they would have been like, as opposed to just what past historians did, which is just to leave them out then, right? Mm. And so, I mean, I think that notion of critical fabulation is really engaging me now, and I just read it a lot, and I, I love her. Um, and then the, the other, I read a lot of poets, and so I, I just read Natasha Trethway's beautiful book, Memorial Drive, which yes. in that same vein, you know, is deep, an extremely vulnerable history, but also mixed with a poetic voice and meditation about time and um, space and location. She says something at the end of that book about how 
maybe we always think that timing is everything. And she says, maybe it's not time, but it's actually place is everything. Mm. And so I've just been thinking a lot about that, you know, and sort of the interrelationship of time and place. But that, that is a fabulous book, just a fabulous book. I'm almost done with Cast. Um, oh, yes, uh, I have to read that. Uh, yeah, you have to read it. It's, it's enlightening in a thousand ways. Um, yeah, I recommend it. It's very worth reading. Well, listen, we're going to close for now. I hope to see you in two weeks. Would you tell your partner, Adam Bush, I sent my love and I hope to see him as well. Yes, and send your partner, Bernadine Dorn, all my <laughs> love as well. Okay. And love I to will, you. All right, bye-bye. Okay. It's time for our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook. We're, we're joined by Light Ailey, a journalist, reporter, artist, ethnographer, and someone who makes a lot of sense out of the world from a 12-year-old point of view. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Lighty. Thanks for being here. You too. Thank you for having me. You know, we've talked about teaching. We've talked about art. You told us a little bit about an art class you took. But then we also veered off and we got to talking about the fact that um, we had a little back and forth, a little argument about whether the point of school is to teach you useful things that you can immediately apply, or whether there's also some aspects of school that is about thinking, about you know reimagining, about um, soaring into the unknown. And, and I want to return to that. So um, do you remember that conversation? I do, yes. And, and you remember that you were wrong. <laughs> I I'm wouldn't go kidding. that far. Okay, we had we had a slight uh, back and forth about it, but you know I I was thinking about it um, over the last few days, and I was thinking about the great African American revolutionary and uh, intellectual W. E. B. Du Bois once said, "The point of education is to not is not to make a man a carpenter, but is to make a carpenter a full human being." And I thought that was interesting because he was saying it's not always utilitarian, you know. Sometimes there are other aspects that are worthwhile. And I think you know that from your own experience. Yeah, I do. I mean, you love to read, and, and the reading doesn't automatically apply to uh, things in the world, right? Yeah, but reading for pleasure is like a different thing. I mean, I I don't... I don't read because I think that it's going to help me in life. Well, except that you, you read because you want to think about the world and you read to learn things about the world as well as to get different perspectives on things. So even the fact that you like to read novels and you like to read comic books and you get different characters, perspectives, don't you think that's valuable in itself to see that the world is more complicated than just yeah, a set and of I, actions? Yeah, and I do think it helps with like empathy right because you are kind of put into a put into a character's world with their problems and they exactly. you you have to worry about them because otherwise you're not fully experiencing the book right and 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 it's also true that you'll have a, a novel or a book with two characters who have different perspectives and so your empathy can kind of swing back and forth between one and the other yeah that's that's true. What other arts do you get involved in? I know you play in the band. I know you've taken, you told us that you've been taking drawing classes. Yeah, I mean, band is just a required school thing. I don't, 
I'm not, like, exactly passionate about band, but, um, I, I do enjoy drawing and painting, and I love sculpture, um. You love sculpture, did you say? Yeah. What kind, what, what kind of things have you made? Um, actually, in, in, I would fourth maybe grade maybe fourth grade we had an assignment to write a comic just a one-page comic and Mm. then put um and then make one of the characters out of clay oh wow so when you do sculptures always clay or have you done wood or other things we have done paper mache and you like that I did. I mean, it was difficult, and you had to kind of be persistent about it because it falls apart often, and it's messy, and there are a lot of different steps. Patience and persistence are important parts of paper mache. And and what did you make from paper mache? We um we had a unit about Mexican culture, so we did alabrijes because we learned about the man who like first made one of those, and mm. apparently. Apparently, they came to him in a dream, and they were, like, very scary. And they mm. were, like, these horrifying animals that kept chanting alabrije. And then he, like, woke up in the morning and started making them kind of colorful and fun instead. Out of oh, wow. clay and mache and wood and things. So... Do you, st- do you still have yours? Actually, that was right before um, COVID, so I never got to take it from school. Maybe it's still at school. It, yeah, it probably is in one of the like storage rooms or something with the other ones. Unbelievable. Um, what other art? What other arts are you involved in? So music. You say you you don't really love band as a requirement, but you love music. You listen to music. Yeah, I mean, I love music, of course, but I play the flute for school, and sometimes it is so frustrating that I like think I want to quit. Because, uh-huh. I mean, I was warned about that when I decided to join. I liked the way they sounded. I liked the way people mm-hmm. looked while playing them. I thought it looked, like, delicate and pretty. But it's been, what is it now, three years since I started playing flute. And still I feel like a beginner. I always feel like I'm behind in the class. And I always feel like I'm the only one who doesn't know how to play this stupid, like, B-flat scale. It's this whole thing. I don't know. And it's really hard and when I don't get it immediately it it is frustrating for me and that that's tough but but yeah I love so you thought it was delicate and pretty and it turns out to be ponderous and ugly I mean there's definitely a different feel while you play it than while you watch someone else play it because when you're playing it you're lightheaded and it's hard and you feel like you're you know, spitting all over it. It's horrible. And it, when you see someone else play it, it looks, like, delicate and gorgeous. So it's complicated <laughs> for me in that way. But so so let's go back to music in general, though. It's a, partly a question of trying to play music and seeing the complexity and the difficulty of it. But you like music, and some music makes you... evokes different emotions, doesn't it? I mean, sadness, happiness, joy... Um, triumph courage don't you think music has the ability to get get you emotionally in a way that your intellectual brain doesn't i do and there are def- there are definitely different moods i have an app that it's um you can make like playlists in it and i have a bunch of different playlists like one is called like vibes and one is called like sleepy time or whatever and one is called like 
like sad or something you know they're just things so when i feel some way like and and like want to play music i can like reflect the way i feel in the music so i organize some of my favorite songs in in categories like that so give me one category and a couple of of uh, pieces that is in that category um in vibes there's off to the races by lana del rey there's nana by trey songs there's Scared of the Dark from the Spider-Man movie. Um, and there's there's um, Skyfall by Adele. That song actually makes me feel like I'm the villain in a Disney movie, which is nice sometimes. Why is that? Why is the that? vibe of it is kind of, like, evil and, like... I like that song, I really do, but it's, like, very evil and mysterious in a way. So you've got music. Didn't you play violin for a while also? I did, and piano. And so do you still play them or not really? Not really anymore, no. I played piano for like four years when I was really little. And then I did violin for maybe two years when I was in elementary school. And then when we got to pick our own instruments for um, middle school, I picked flute. And now I'm, I'm, still, I'm still doing that. I see. You know, I I wonder if you ever think about this. I mean, the fact that you've actually played three instruments, the fact that you have organized your music in these ways, the fact that you love to read and get access to reading. Um, there are a lot of kids who go to schools where they have no arts. They have nothing um, in, in terms of uh, music, art, painting, drawing, sculpture. Uh, I think I think I, I wonder what you think of that. That there are so many kids who don't have access. To those things, would that be a a different school experience, or how would it be different? Well, I um I used to go to a different school than I do now, and my old school had little to no, like almost none of that kind of thing. And when I transferred to my new school, I actually this is a pretty good example. When I first transferred there, I opened a drawer in my art room. And it was full of these fancy markers that I have always loved. And I was like, I just remember like the shock and delight that came with seeing those in the drawer because they're expensive. Like those markers are really fancy. And, and I was like, wow. Cause like my old school would never have had even like marker. Like we always had in our art room, like a, like old dirty Crayola crayons and stuff. But, but should they have had markers? Should all kids have access? Of to course, all kids should have that kind of thing. You know, and of, it's really unfair that some kids don't. One of the things I remember about that old school is they had a very robust theater program. That you, there were kids in plays all the time. Do you remember? I do remember. Yeah, I remember going to two of those plays that my sister was in. The first one I will like remember forever. Actually, why? I don't know. I was really little, and it just amazed me to see my sister on the stage. Uh-huh. Even though it was just, like, it was just some kind of, like, kids' play. I, I don't... But you remember seeing her on stage and how valuable that was, and she probably remembers being on stage. She was, like, in third or fourth grade, and I was like, wow, she's such an adult. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And now I'm like, she was a kid. Like, I don't... She was younger than I am now when that happened. Yeah, but still, there must be something... Um, expansive in her own school experience to know that she was on a stage performing night after night 
and that you came and her parents came uh, to see her. That was pretty exciting, I would think. Yeah, it was really fun. Have you been in a play yourself? I was in the play that never happened because it because the the school closed down. I and see. I'm actually glad that the the um like I'm not glad like that sucks and I would have chosen for it to go on. But still it was pretty humiliating. I had auditioned with two of my friends, my best friends. Yeah. And two of us got ensemble. That was me and my best friend. And my other friend got one of the lead roles. <laughs> So that wasn't exactly the best experience I've ever had, and I don't think I'm going to do... Because at this school, the same exact thing happened with my sister. She auditioned, like, three times every single year, and each time she just got an ensemble role. And, of course, right now, there's always that feeling, like, there's always that irresistible little speck of feeling where, like, maybe I'll get a better role this time. But I know that's not going to happen. This exact same thing happened with my sister, so I don't think I'm going to audition again for one of those. You've been in dance performances, though, also, haven't you? dance performances well i went to a dance summer camp oh okay um last or two summers ago and we had a recital at the end that was fun you know i think every human being is is potentially a creator of art a maker and i think you're very very lucky that you have multiple opportunities to make art but you also are someone who engages with art you look at art you go to museums and so on can you tell me about any of those experiences i have gone to see a lot of plays mostly because my dad is a playwright Mm -hmm. and he he you know that's his world so we go to plays a lot um i actually have a collection of i collect um i'm blanking on the word what's the little book they give you at the beginning of a play playbill a playbill. Yeah, yeah, the little, the little like paper books yeah. that they give you with like the cast and stuff in them. I collect those. I have one from almost every play I've ever gone and seen. My favorite plays are probably Hamilton. I went to see that. That was amazing. I have all the songs memorized. I have a bunch of like Hamilton T-shirts and stuff. It's yeah, um, and probably a christmas carol we go to see that almost every christmas and that play is amazing it it scared me so bad when i first saw it because i was really little and it's quite scary honestly but it's also so good i've always loved that play the ghost from Um, christmas past and and all that yeah yeah. i was always scared of the ghost of, of um jacob marley that that really terrified me and i've gone to see i didn't make it through this one because i was little and it it I, I even now i would not have enjoyed this but i went to see macbeth with my family oh boy that was not successful at all i didn't even make it through that one my mom had to like take me home at intermission i was little and it was a really really scary play Which, um what, and what, what do you remember that was scary from it I think I probably blocked it out of my memory, but I do remember one scene where the ghost of the the guy he kills is like in a chair yes. and then he's and he starts like freaking out and then his wife is like you've displaced the mirth mm. because he like started screaming and like completely mm. freaking out cuz he had like a vision of the ghost of the person he killed in the like in his throne. Mm. Um 
I think that was when I was like, yeah, I'm out. I can't. I can't watch this. Doesn't that play begin with witches? It does begin with witches, yes. I remember the first line. I think it's boil, boil, uh, boil, bubble, toil, and trouble. Something like that. that. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. And and you say you've memorized Hamilton. Can you uh, sing us the beginning of one song? I'm good, but (laughs) um, I did use it to impress some of my classmates because I can do like the Lafayette rap. You can? Let's hear a little bit bit of it. I know you're good, but you could be better if you did it. Oh my god. Um, okay. I'm taking this horse by its brains, making red coats redder with blood stains. Lafayette, and I'm never gonna stop until I make the drop of them, and I'm gonna scatter the remains. Um, watch me engaging, I'm escaping, I'm enraging, I'm, um, I go to France for more funds, I come back with more guns and ships, and so the battle shifts. We rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts. We can end this war in Yorktown, cut them off at sea, but for this to succeed, there is someone else we need. I know, Hamilton, so he knows what to do in the trench and to do it in fluent in French, I mean. So you're gonna have to get him eventually. What's he gonna do on the bench, I mean? So you're gonna... Uh, so that's okay, great. yeah, okay, I'm gonna wow. die of embarrassment, so that's enough. Wow, that was unbelievable. I can hear wild applause coming from all directions. Okay. And I think we should leave it there. That was really helpful, lady. Thank you so, so much for being on Under the Tree. Why are you holding I, your hand over your eyes? Because I, you know, I, ooh, I'm gonna, okay. It was nice to be here. Thank you for having me under the tree. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Before we leave today, we're going to have a homework assignment, but we'd like to let you listen to a couple of responses we got to past homework assignments. So we got a couple emails from Joy Johnson. The first one was in response to our free write from way back in episode one about fate versus freedom. She writes, When we harnessed electricity, we were made artists given more freedom than the holy trinity of the three dimensions ever afforded. Sudden the free electrons, which require less deterministic equations, liberated us from realistic Newton, and we claimed a future probabilistic. But the mystics argue now, all is ideation, and as such an ague of individual inability to turn all thought to love, the new religious gimmickry, gratis quantum mechanics misapprehending. Believe me, In the world we do inhabit, variously colored in substance, Newton holds sway. Invariably, even NASA uses MGH more than it does MC squared. Electricity holds us upright. Gravity keeps us fastened to the divine. Our mother, the earth whose orbit barely heeds a word of Einstein. And this I say from my heart. It's not all your fault. Fate may come with punishing import regardless of the quality of your contemplation. Remember with me, you are nonetheless a work of art. And on the qualities of an educated person, she writes, Several hours of text message back and forth between a city councilwoman and me, all morning and into the afternoon, in effort to get her to arrive at a solution of her own devising. Educated cops are more empathetic. She adds, quote unquote, critical thinkers. I wrote long ago, too, about the teamwork required for most to persist and succeed, and if lucky, honesty and curiosity will come along for the ride. 
On my best days, I exhibit as many as perhaps three of these. Bad days, let's not go there. Fabulous. So the homework for today is based on the conversations we've been having about art and culture. Every one of us is an artist of our own lives. Author, actor, agent, composer. These roles allow us to wield essential tools against propaganda, political agendas, dogma, and all kinds of impositions and stereotypes. Art seeks honesty and authenticity, and that means it dives into contradictions, disagreements, silences, negations, denials, inconsistencies, confusion, challenges, turmoil, puzzlement, commotion, ambiguities, paradoxes, disputes, uncertainty, and every kind of muddle. That makes art an ally of critical and engaged and vibrant minds. What we'd like you to do is take a minute to sketch or draw or paint or dance or put some words together in a poem about yourself and the creation of your art project, your major art project, which is you. Don't forget to rate and review Under the Tree on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating, a review. It helps us get noticed on all of the algorithms and the podcast apps. Thank you for listening and tell a friend about the show. Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise. And to my workmate in arms, Ali Khalil, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Our music is by Tom, the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and justice on my mind. Until next time. Black for the skin, green for the land, red for the blood, steady freedom's hand.